0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Cable. Our guests today are Gene O'Brien and Daniel Heath Justice, here to discuss their 2021 edited volume, Allotment Stories. The book collects more than two dozen chronicles of white imperialism and indigenous resistance, ranging from the historical to the contemporary and grappling with indigenous land struggles around the globe. These narratives showcase both scholarly and creative forms of expression, constructing a multifaceted book of diverse perspectives that will inform readers while provoking them toward further research into indigenous resilience. Jean O'Brien is professor of history and American Indian studies at the University of Minnesota where her research and teaching interests include Native American and indigenous studies, federal recognition, settler colonial studies, and US colonialism. Other works include Dispossession by Degrees, 1997, and Firsting and Lasting, 2010. Daniel Heath Justice is Professor of Critical Indigenous Studies and English at the University of British Columbia, where his research and teaching interests include Indigenous Studies, Animal Studies, Speculative Fiction, and Gender and Sexuality. His most recent books include Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, from 2018, and Raccoon, from Two thousand twenty-one. Professors Justice and O'Brien, welcome to new books in Native American studies. Thank, Thank you. you,
1: John. Mm-hmm.
0: So, first of all, can each of you maybe give a sense of your own history and scholarly background before arriving at this topic? And if we could start with Professor O'Brien.
1: Oh uh, sure, yes. Um, happy to be here, John. So my background is. Uh... Basically in history and American Indian studies back going all the way back to college and my interests developed you know, a long time ago when I was very young. But my professional background has to do with training in the discipline of history, but with an, a strong interest in doing American Indian history, which when dating back to the time when I started in graduate school was not something that was necessarily that welcome in mainstream history department. So I was very fortunate to be able to find a place, the University of Chicago, where I was able to do indigenous history. And I got started working on New England kind of by accident. I thought I was going to study my own um, personal history, which is I'm a citizen of the White Earth Ojibwe Nation. And instead, I got involved in thinking about questions about indigenous history in New England, and particularly about the long colonial history of Native people there, and narratives of disappearance that have really really taken a hold on the narrative there so my first book that you mentioned dispossession by degrees is about that and the second book that you mentioned "Firsting and lasting is really uh, a book that tries to understand how it is that people convince themselves that new england indians had become extinct when they really indeed had not so and then i have a, a third book that is on new england that looks at modern, uh, contemporary memorialization practices and thinking about history the monument to uh, the leader massasoit the massasoit in uh plymouth massachusetts and all kinds of things that rippled up around uh that that statue so those are kind of the monographs that i've worked on but all along i was hoping and now indeed i'm finally going back to doing ojibwe history so uh daniel do do you want to tell the story about how we came to this project do you want me to start on this uh you can go ahead okay so well you know what i actually i'll start by just saying we came to this project basically through a social occasion, and I'm going to let Daniel introduce himself first, and then we'll go back to that. How about that? That seems like it makes more sense.
2: Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah, so I'm a Cherokee Nation citizen. I was raised, born and raised in Colorado, um, and my background is in literary studies primarily, but also history. Um, In my PhD, I did uh, a focus on Native American literature and uh, subspecialty in Native history. So my work has always kind of uh, straddled the line between the literary and the historical. And uh, my primary interest um, with my first book was on Cherokee literary history specifically um, within the the theoretical mode of uh, indigenous literary nationalism. And those concerns have still been very much at the at the heart of my work really going back and and thinking about specificity of experience but also how that connects with broader um political historical um and intellectual uh, patterns and relationships and i think part of that for me was because i wasn't raised in community um i wasn't raised uh with a strong sense of Cherokee groundedness in Cherokee tradition, in Cherokee lands. Um, my scholarship has always been kind of looking at that, those ruptures and the gaps between my family's uh, immediate experiences and those of my grandmother and you know those before who um, actually were in the nation itself. Um, and I think that that's a good foundation for the conversation we have about this book because it's really about how do we connect to land and history and belonging especially when under colonialism a lot of the ties have gotten unraveled for a lot of families and ruptured and how do we restore those but also how do we understand those spaces where we may not be able to restore everything
0: well thanks and and, um Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Janine.
1: I was going to say this. So this is what brings us to this project. That's why I wanted to wait for Daniel to introduce himself first, is that uh, what brought us to this project is our own family histories, and in particular, a conversation that we had at the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association meeting at University of British Columbia oh several years ago, where we were just really kind of catching up with each other and, you know, doing that sort of thing. Well, what are you working on now? And it turned out that both of us, had really just been diving into our own family's history with allotment policy and how it impacted our lives and our ancestors' lives. And we just got talking and really excited about it and literally comparing experiences, talking about our families, talking about allotment and thinking, wow, this seems like this would be a great project. There's lots and lots and lots of Indigenous people who have stories about allotment or more broadly, Land privatization schemes in, in colonial places. And so we just had this idea to try to in, examine this and we ran with it.
2: And one of the f- interesting things for both of us was in talking about our family's experiences, allotment had kind of a similar ultimate impact, but was realized very, very differently in that it brought Jeannie's family back to. The, the community um, in kind of the, the reservation in particular, and it actually pushed my family away from the community um, and so th- the really interesting aspect of that was okay, so it's the same policy realized very differently, has very similar kinds of impacts, but the the nuance and and detail are very unique. And so trying to understand, okay, how does, we we know the ultimate impacts of a lot of these policies, but they're realized in very different ways, depending on the nation, depending on the era, depending on the the location.
1: And right. one and of the I, things I, that's I should... important about the context of that is that we were at the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association meeting, which is an association that's been around for maybe 15 years, I think it is. And it, it's an it's a organization that is around global Indigenous studies, and we started thinking, wow, there must be all kinds of experiences globally for Indigenous people to recount that are pertinent to what we were talking about. So, just wanted to throw that in there as well.
0: Right, I was just going to mention that the essays range in focus from um, from from the U.S. and Canada to Mexico to Finland, and Palestine. So they are all over the place in a, in a really um, really interesting, cool way. Um, so, and and since there are so many contributors in allotment stories. Uh, Let's focus first on the two of you. Uh, You both penned chapters, essays. Um, Jean O'Brien, your contribution is titled Making Manomen Home, The Dawes Act and Ojibwe Mobility in Grandma's Stories. And to my mind, this piece really does get to the heart of why it pays to hear a variety of perspectives on allotment. Uh, Experiences differed very, very widely. Um, Can you walk us through this piece?
1: Uh, sure. So this is this is the first piece of writing that I have done to try to make sense of and put together, really, my family's Ojibwe story. And it, it stems from, actually, the fact that when I was about seven years old, my grandmother, who lived on the White Earth uh, Reservation in northwestern Minnesota, her husband passed, my grandpa, and she ended up moving into our house in southern Minnesota. I grew up off the reservation as well. And it was mostly she She would come for the harsher seasons for the winter and then go back to the reservation in the summer and we would go with her, some of us, or visit her for extended periods of time as well. But when she was in her home, what she was doing with her time a lot of the time was really writing down what I'm calling her memoirs, jotting down stories, family stories that she remembered that she was trying to preserve about her family coming to the reservation actually at the moment that Allotment was being implemented in Minnesota. And so this is what Daniel was alluding to: that allotment actually brought my Ojibwe family from this very migratory way of life that they had to the reservation to claim allotments. And so this that I have this longer history of uh, indigeneity in Minnesota than my grandmother and her family come to the reservation, and the town Minomon becomes their home. So hence the title making Monoman home and then the story of dispossession that Daniel's alluding to and that we all know about allotment is of course exactly what happened to my family as well. They lost every single one of their allotments pretty quickly and in in the course of about two and a half or three decades, everybody in the family except for my grandmother and then her you know she'd married and stayed on the reservation everybody else migrated away many of them, to the emerging urban indian community in minneapolis so the story is really about how allotment brought that into being and uh how it totally in in dramatic ways in fact it impacted the history of her entire extended family and of course us
0: and i want to back up for just a minute for um for sort of the uninitiated folks that may not be as familiar with with uh native american history Um, and just sort of pin a definition on allotment. You know, in the U.S. context, we talk about the Dawes Act um, and then subsequent acts like the Curtis Act and others. Um, and and I, I should also mention that there's a great glossary at the back uh, here in case folks who are reading these these essays are unfamiliar with the history. But um, either of you, if you'd just like to briefly explain um, allotment in the in the perhaps in the U.S. context, um, and then how it. How it sort of manifests um, in other places, just just very
2: broadly. Do you want to go, Eugenie, or do you want me to do that one?
1: Why don't you Why don't you start, Daniel?
2: Okay. Um so allotment very simply and kind of uh, the general approach we had was it's the privatization of collectively held indigenous lands into individual landholdings um under Dawes and other uh other programs it was around 160 acres but that varied. Uh, and those were distributed ultimately with the idea of that they would be uh fee simple and thus Sellable. So it's not just breaking up the land, it's not just um, assigning individual land holdings to individuals or to families, but to make them transferable, ultimately, with the idea, um, whether explicit or implicit, that um, white people would get final title to these lands. So it's a, it's a long term way of breaking up collective. Uh, autonomy, authority, uh, shared resources into very individualized and transferable assets.
0: Thanks, Daniel. And, and your essay is titled, Narrated Nationhood and Imagined Belonging, Fanciful Stories and Kinship Legacies of Allotment. And it speaks in part to the ways in which allotment could, could result in a lot of falsehoods, a lot of fraud. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about it?
2: yeah so mine is looking at so my i'm a cherokee nation citizen through my dad but my mom's family has long claimed distant native heritage um and in doing research about that it seemed pretty clear that this was not only uh false history that they didn't actually have um indigenous heritage but that those claims come from the allotment period where um some of those relatives were claiming Chickasaw heritage in order to get Chickasaw land. And so I put in parallel my dad's family story where we lost land as a result of allotment and also lost connections and um, stories that linked us to one another. And then on my mom's side of the family, the people who falsified stories and laid claim to land. So putting those side by side and reading that experience of allotment through both lived experience and actual ties that were unraveled and no lived experience and manufactured claims to ties. Um, And looking at the ways that a lot of these stories about distant native heritage, they're not innocent stories that are just based on romantic ideas of wanting to belong. They're actually rooted in a period that, where fraud was rife, and these, these kinds of manufactured stories were developed specifically and explicitly to dispossess Native people of territory.
0: The book is divided into, into four parts, um, family narrations of privatization, racial and gender taxonomies, privatization as state violence, and resistance and resurgence. And while there isn't time to really get into all of the excellent contributions, I hope it's okay that I ask each of you to select maybe one or two that, that might merit special attention or, or comment.
1: Uh, I'll go ahead and, and get us started off, uh, but I want to back up just for a second and, and talk a little bit more about the reason we have these chapters. So as Daniel and I were having this discussion about our interests and got really animated and kind of in the course of just that conversation itself decided that we really wanted to try to do this edited volume one of the things we talked about was well how do you do this I mean there's the there's the old process of saying well I know a bunch of people who work on this why why don't we get in touch with them and see if they're interested and we did a little bit of that but also what we decided to do was to actually issue a call for proposals for chapters for the volume and distribute it pretty widely on social media and so I would start by saying there are people who are in this volume that we've never met before, or at least the two of us haven't met face to face with them, and so that was really exciting to see work come. We we thought it would, but work came in from all over the world in really really exciting ways, and so it's hard to pick favorites because I think they're all really amazing stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) So I'll I'll start with uh, the genre that we were super excited about and foregrounded, which is that we got. A lot of creative pieces and this was deliberate so we have short contributions from leanne simpson and from marilyn dumont and uh they're just they just create a wonderful what well, we call them interludes we start with leanne simpson to open this up but then the, the each of the sections that you just described have creative writing as interludes but then there's a, the very first full chapter is so awesome sarah Biscari Dilly's uh chapter which is she's an artist by training and she talks about her family's history of land loss and just history in general in california and it's a very very moving piece it's it's creative both in in displaying some of her own artwork but also in the formatting of the piece itself so that's a that's a real favorite we decided to lead with that because I think this is what we decided, Daniel, that we decided that that had that captured everything we were excited about. Yep. The creatives, the family stories, and the interdisciplinarity. And just I feel I just felt like a really fantastic way to start us off. And I could go on and on with the other chapters, but I'll let Daniel jump in here and pick some more favorites. I know that's one of yours, so I stole that from you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think this is one of those projects where It's not just that you really, you're happy with all the contributions, but every time we would read through the submissions, we would just be so excited because there was, there wasn't a dud in the group. Um, And, you know, some... Sometimes you work on an edited project and and you're like, well, this one, we're going to need to do a lot more work with this one. And we were really fortunate. Not only did we have great stories, we also had really keen scholars, you know, some who are very well established and some who are um, just now getting their names uh, more widely recognized. Um, So it is a difficult task to choose any particular one. I think one that really surprised me that I've talked about before, but I, I think is is worth reiterating is jennifer Adizi's extinguishing the dead uh, where she looks at uh, the topic of metis script which was um, a way that uh, metis people uh, here in canada were dispossessed through uh almost like promissory notes that were very easily um very easily lost and transferred but in her research of Of these kind of script histories, she came across uh, the ways in which dead Métis could also be dispossessed, um, and that the dispossession by typically white husbands or fathers would affect subsequent generations. Um, And that just took it to another ghoulish level of... um, of wickedness, that it wasn't just that we were talking about the dispossession of the living, but we were also mm-hmm. talking about dispossession of the dead, um, and it's it's a really powerful and profound essay, um, and the implications of it are quite harrowing. All right.
0: All right. So, in in terms of an intervention, um, how you, how you position this this volume? Um, how do you see allotment stories fitting into the existing literature on the topic of allotment?
1: Well, I think, and we can <laughs> and we can start, start with saying, Jeannie
0: first. Yeah,
1: <laughs> sure. I would Sorry. start by saying that, I, I mean, I teach American Indian history every year, eighteen thirty to the present, to undergraduates, to lots of them, and one of the one of the frameworks that I use is policy because it has such an important uh, impact on Native people from the from the past and into the present in really tangible ways that have not gone away. The, the cumulative uh, debris, in some ways, of of. Uh, this awful history of dispossession and and so the intervention when I when I'm teaching allotment it's really hard to find something that tells the kinds of stories that I want to tell about it. I mean I can talk about the Dawes Act and the Curtis Act and 160 acres and the Northwest Ordinance and all these things that come to bear on the policy itself but at the end of the day that's a policy that had an impact on human beings and that's that's something that we didn't see, I don't think we could we've seen many stories of that in the literature that that I've found very, very usable. There are, of course, many of these 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 uh, scholarly treatises that do that work, Rose Stremlaw, There's a lot of books that do that, but in the, not in the way that it felt like I could do in a big survey course. And so this, to me, fits into the existing literature in a couple of ways. One is, it's by telling those personal stories and in virtually every instance there these are stories i mean we came to we came to the title of the book right away as well this is really a lotment stories so it's narrating what it was like what it, and what it is like for native people to experience this really deliberately destructive policy so there's that and then the other thing is again the comparative dimension that the Dawes Act is just the Dawes Act in the united states right but it's not mm-hmm. at all the only place where indigenous people suffered privatization schemes. And so one can use this volume to talk about privatization as a scheme of settler colonial states and other colonial powers that you know, sought to dispossess native peoples for the benefit of colonial regimes and non-indigenous uh, individuals from around the world. And it happened in diverse ways in diverse places yeah I would also say that we we had aspirations for other kinds of chapters to go into this volume. there are parts of the world that we wanted to have represented in chapters that just didn't end up happening like Brazil for example mm-hmm. uh, there could be more about more volumes on this on this uh, this theme of, of allotment and privatization but we really get a kind of sense of this is a global phenomena so I think I would right. say that those would be, the, some of the critical interventions that I, I hope we are making with this volume.
0: Sure. Oh, good. Um, yeah, and and I'm glad, uh, Jeannie, that you mentioned um, using it in the classroom. Before we started this conversation, you and I were talking about um, how useful a volume would be, uh, a volume like this would be in, in an undergraduate classroom. Most of the essays, for those listeners who do not have a copy in front of them. Uh, most of the essays are between, you know, five and fifteen pages. Some, some more, some less, but uh, really good, pretty bite-sized, um, you know, reading assignments uh, for for undergrads. In addition to whatever else you're assigning, and, and so it really is very useful volume. Uh, Daniel Heath Justice and Gene O'Brien, thanks so much for your time today.